Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali back hosting the show and we promise we'll be bringing you more episodes and today the accent here at our podcast just got richer because we have, I don't know, she's like, you know, multitasking all the time, but I call her voice of the tennis stadiums. It's Blair Henley and it's an absolute honor to host you on this podcast and look forward to this chat. Saqib, thanks so much for having me. It's been a long time coming uh, since our meeting in Newport earlier this summer. Now, you know, what I've learned in this business, you know, I've been, I'm an outsider. I also do a cricket podcast. And when, you know, folks like yourself who are actually in the industry, I think it's, uh, I totally appreciate it's not easy because you have so many commitments and you have social media demands. And then you also have hobbyists like us, you know, who want to host your voice and get your opinion. So I definitely know it's not easy, but since we are here and you've done a lot of podcasts, but the standard question here on our podcast is this long format interview. We tried to you know, say we are like not experts, but that's our specialty. So what's your relationship with tennis? I know you played college tennis, you helped your high school win, you know, a tennis championship, but you know, what is your earliest memory and how did you, what does the road go back? How far does it go back to? I was young when I first got out on a tennis court, when I first held a tennis racket in my hand, I feel like I, I, I was very, uh, not to sound too cheesy, but blessed in that department. My dad's a tennis pro, a teaching pro. Um, he's been the, the director at a tennis club for my entire life. And so I kind of grew up around the tennis courts, around the tennis shop. Uh, you know, my, my dad, you know, I looking back all the pros that would work for my dad during the summer, they would probably try to hide from me at the end of the day. Cause I'd always be like, can we hit for like 15 minutes, like 15 minutes of mini tennis. Uh, so I was very, you know, looking back, gosh, I'm so thankful that pretty much I got to play as much tennis as I wanted. Uh, and I had a, a built-in coach in my dad. So, uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, I was, if I have to think of a specific tennis memory, um, that's a tough one. I mean, it, it's probably being on the tennis court with my dad. Um, and, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, with my one-handed backhand, I never, have never had a two-hander, always had a one-hander. And now that I have little kids, like realizing how hard it is to teach a five-year-old a one-handed backhand. I have a lot of respect that my dad, you know, stuck with it all those years. It's funny. You know, like I never, I had a chance to be coached. I mean, at a, and when I was in India, but I was too lazy to take the city bus because we lived in a different part of the city. But I'm, I learned my tennis in wooden, then graphite, but I was always slicing with a single hand. And now when I play my club tennis here, I'm one of the few single-handed guys and, and for me, it's tough to hit a double-hander because, you know, what you learn. And uh, I can't really come over my backhand, but I can still, I think if someone asked me to hit a two-hander, I can't hit a two-hander. Uh, so. I am very poor at that myself. It's funny because you see the two-handers and they can sort of go to the one-hander. Yeah. <laughs> me trying to hit a two-hander is not yeah, for me. For me, one-hander is easy because that's all I know. And two-hander is just, you know, ridiculous, which, you know, what any club player, you know, does that. So... So again, yeah, sticking back to, you know, your tennis days, I mean, uh, and of course you played, uh, you were college ranked, if I'm not correct. So how serious was this tennis commitment? You know, were you entertaining to be on the tour at one point? Because we all do, like if someone asked me, I say, as a young boy, you know, but my reality wasn't even close. I didn't even play any tennis. So just walk us through what Mm -hmm. the ambitions were and, you know, like how tennis, you know, brought you here. I was very uh, single-minded in my ambition from a young age. I played tennis. I loved tennis. It's what I was around, and that's what I wanted to do, and I wanted to be the best I possibly could be at it. So I never 
played any other sports. Tennis is all I did. Um, and growing up in South Florida, you know, there were plenty of resources, obviously tons of academies nearby, uh, tons of tournaments to play that were relatively close at least. Um, and, you know, looking back, I'm wondering like, maybe I should have played other sports. My parents always said, you know, do you want to give something else a try? But I just loved tennis. And I was like, you know what, if this is what I want to be good at, why not? And I, and I don't feel burned out. My parents were always very careful. They were, you know, I had, there were definitely a few times where maybe they didn't love my attitude on the court, or I was so frustrated after a tournament or a practice that they were like, take a week off, like take a step, <laughs> take a step back. So they were always making sure that burnout um, was, was something that I was paying attention to. Uh, but, but yeah, loved it from a young age and, and stuck with it all the way through college. And thankfully, you know, again, I did not, I was not, I didn't go bored at a tennis academy. I went to normal school. Um, so by the time I got to college, you know, I still wanted to get better. Whereas I definitely knew, you know, I had some teammates who got their scholarship, got to school and were so burned out from all the tennis that was played and all the tournaments that were played and the school that was missed by the time they got there, that they, they didn't have anything left in the tank. So I feel very fortunate that I sort of had the, the long-term uh, track. It was definitely frustrating sometimes in the, you know, the 16s where I was getting my, my uh, <laughs> butt kicked. But looking back, I'm very thankful for sort of the slow burn in terms of, of my practice and my focus. I think it's very interesting because in most sports like international, if you try to balance it with academics, it's just, it's, it's not easy, you know, to play it full time. I mean, I mean, folks like us, you know, we struggle to just get academics out of the way and forget about, you know, playing like a regimented set of, you know, like, okay, practice in the morning, then drills in the afternoon, then again, go. Yeah. I was talking to Rajiv Ram a few years ago and he said, collegiate tennis teaches you a lot because the roadmap is quite different than say what a 17 year old Sitsipas, you know, has to go through because he's learning about life as he is, you know, now 22, you know, ATP probably takes care of some uh, education as well. But so, yeah, I think that's a very interesting point that you said with the slow burn and the balancing act. So if you were to advise someone again, uh, and Florida being a tennis capital in the U S I think, so, you know, is that the place to start? Because, you know, I know you're biased, you're from Florida, but when I came to, sorry, sir, well-rounded question. But when I came to U.S., I thought tennis is the sport here, but it's not the case. But in Florida, I think it seems like it's the center. Mm-hmm. Because, so is that uh, so is that a huge part of your bringing? Because, you know, tennis was one of the major sports in Florida because it seems like a lot of world-class players trained there. Yes. Muddle the question, but I think the question is about Florida. I no, no, yeah. And I, I listen, Florida, and I don't know, I, I wonder sort of, how much it's changed, if at all, over the years, because I I have, you know, went to uh, Texas for college and never moved back to Florida. My parents are still there, but I'm not, I don't really have my finger on the pulse of junior tennis in Florida like I once did, but it was, it was a learning experience in itself. I mean, it was cutthroat. You had a lot of players who were coming in from overseas training in Florida. Um, The, (laughs) I mean, you hear about the cheating and the parents coaching in the bushes. Like it's a thing. It was a thing that actually happened and something that you sort of have to work through in real time. And you just sort of have to realize that, you know, life isn't fair. Sometimes um, there, there's never going to come a day where they're going to be chair umpires and lines people on junior tennis match courts uh, on all of them at the local tournament. So you just sort of have to deal with 
that adversity. That's it certainly isn't what colored my experience of playing Florida junior tennis, but I think it just underscores the fact that it was a kind, just kind of a cutthroat atmosphere. There were all these kids who, if they weren't trying to go pro, they were going for the same scholarships that you were. Um, and so again, I, I think that it was, I learned a lot. I probably cried a lot. <laughs> I went looking back, I'm like, gosh, if only I could have handled losses like a little bit better, I would have wasted far less energy. But um, I mean, I, it really did shape my teenage years. Um, and I think I'd be a much different person without it. It just made me, I think, a little bit tougher personally. It probably affects everyone a little bit differently. But for me, I think it just made me a little tougher. Yeah, I think reflecting stuff like this is always important because we all have our own paths. And no, I think you absolutely make a good point there. So now again, you know, to even introduce you, I was thinking, how do I go? Because, you know, I visited your page, I've seen your work. So just walk us through the evolution of your tennis career, you know, like uh, maybe spend a couple of minutes for, you know, Tennis Express, but mm -hmm. then, you know, how you are now voice of the stadiums, you know, you interview all these world-class players, you've written at various outlets, and you are, you know, of course, you're very articulate, you know, you're quick on your feet and you know what to do. You know, I'm preparing like a podcast and I have like 12 questions, but you have to ask, say, Djokovic right after a match, like what is the right three questions? So just, uh, yeah. you know, walk us through how you got here and then, you know, we'll take a deeper dive into your post-match interview skills, which are like absolutely world-class and I want to pick your brain, well, you know, for the most part of this podcast, at least the better part of it. So well, thank you. First of all, thank you. That's very kind. I, you know, honestly, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I graduated from Rice University with an economics degree and felt just sort of drawn in by tennis. I was like, I just don't know that I want to leave the sport, but also, you know, people, you know, my, my peers were going into investment banking. And I was like, is this really what I want to do? Um, so I taught tennis uh, for, a, uh, let's see, probably a year, two years um, after I graduated and got a job sort of as a, a consultant at a brand new club that was opening in Houston. So I got to see sort of a club from the ground up, which in, in terms of my actual degree, it was fascinating on, on the business side of things to sort of see the inner workings and how to manage a startup of that magnitude. Uh, so got to kind of work on the business side and then use their tennis courts to teach. So I would get off work at five or six and then I would go teach a couple lessons before I went home at night. So it was, it was actually kind of a neat way to, to get my foot into you know, the more traditional working world, um, but got married when I was 25. My husband was playing minor league baseball at the time. And so we moved, I think, 16 times in about three years, lived out of our car. And it was during that time that I was like, listen, if there's ever going to be a time to uh, start writing or to do something else in the tennis world, this is, this is the time. I didn't have any background in that. And so there was definitely some fear, even though I knew I always loved to write, I always loved public speaking. I, again, I, I went to school for tennis. I did tennis. I majored in, in business, essentially. I, that was not my track. And so, but it was during that time that I started doing some tennis writing for the very first time for, uh, for Randy Walker, who used to work for the USTA, uh, worldtennismagazine.com. We had that website back then. Uh, great experience. Uh, my husband would be doing his thing and I would just go sit at the Panera Bread all day and write tennis stories. 
So anyway, I got my got my feet wet, really liked it. And then uh, when my husband was done playing baseball, I moved back to Houston. He had to finish school. And so I was thinking, you know, my I'm kind of tethered to him in, in some senses because he was going to finish school and then who knows what his job was going to be after that. So got offered a job uh, with the website tennisnow.com, but also in Houston is Tennis Express, uh, one of the biggest tennis retailers in the country. And yeah, got to do a great combination of tennis news writing. That's where I got my feet wet in front of the camera. We had our bi-weekly news show. And I also got to be sort of in touch with the tennis gear side of things, <laughs> which I will say is something that I'm not in touch with anymore. My people are like, what racket do you use? I'm like, it's embarrassing what racket I use. <laughs> they don't even make it anymore. I have to find it on eBay. So, uh, but again, it was, I just sort of got to see every bit of, of sort of the tennis world, the professional tennis world, the media side, the gear, um, the retail side. So it was just a great, education. Um, and I feel like in, I want to make this the longest answer ever. I was like, I'm going to try to boil it down. Um, but that was sort of step one, I guess, was, was getting that first job in tennis media and it really grew from there. And then I guess if, if there was a big break, I guess you could say it was us open 2015, uh, where my friend, Nick McCarville, who many people in tennis know, yep. He was the, the year prior, 2014, he was the MC on court 17 at the U S open 2015. He had a job with USA today and recommended me. We didn't know each other that well at the time. He was like, well, she's done on camera work. She works in tennis, <laughs> like give her a try. So maybe they were desperate, who knows? Uh, but my, he's still my boss at the U S open, uh, Michael Fuhrer gave me a shot. And, and when I say I had no idea what I was doing, I had no idea what I was doing other than I knew who I liked. Like I had watched people and I knew who I thought did a good job. And so I was like, I just am going to try to be like them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really cool. So you said uh, Nick recommended you, but, and you also said that he mentioned that you had done tennis work. So what, what else proceeded? I mean, why did he pick you? You know, we all just curious and, you know, yeah. Connect the dots. Like, you know, what, what was your resume like prior to like being on the MC for Code 17 or? Yeah. So from about 2000, like middle of well, probably end of 2011 or beginning of 2012 to, to 2015, I did, in addition to, I think I covered all four majors for tennis now during that time, which if anybody's trying to break into the tennis industry, I can't recommend getting a foot in the door in the media rooms enough it doesn't have to be at a major. It can be, you know, I met people in you know, Delray beach was the first professional tournament I ever covered and I'm still working for them <laughs> 10 years later, which is, you know, again, I just, tennis is not a big world. And so meeting people in the media rooms is so huge. And I had so many people along the way who were extremely kind to me, but I, so I had the, the written experience and Listen, tennis now as they they have they have sort of their own little niche, but ten years ago or you know a little less than ten years ago, it's not like I was the New York Times coming into <laughs> these media rooms, and so I sort of had to figure out how to be resourceful, how to get stories, how to figure out a story that might be interesting that nobody else wanted, <laughs> so that I could actually get the story. Um, so that was that was educational, I think in itself and sort of learning the inner workings of tennis and meeting some of the agents uh, and, and again, meeting some of the players, because once you have, you know, if you have a good one-on-one -on -one interaction, 
maybe the next time they're more willing to talk to you. So all of it sort of uh, is weaved together uh, as, you know, year upon year in this tennis industry that that we're in. Uh, But yeah, so I had the written part. But really, I think what served me the most was that tennis now had a large YouTube following for for a tennis outlet. And so it was there where there was sort of like this little community. I'll never forget my last when I moved on from uh, from tennis. Now, I actually went and worked for the ATP for about six months and I did my last tennis news show and the the comments I will never forget it it still means a lot to me like the people who were like you it's I just loved you know coming here twice a week to hear what was up in the tennis world it was so great to sort of get to know you from afar it just really neat there was there was an actual sort of tennis community which is I think I mean Twitter we I think we all sort of have that right or else we wouldn't maybe be still doing what we're doing it's a really neat part of the tennis world yeah that's uh again you know uh I had a similar background, not not background, but I covered Miami as my first tournament. I literally begged them, you know, uh, for because you know I had this tennis bug, and my wife still called it like, you know, it's a good hobby. It's like a midlife crisis. Why are you traveling when no one's paying you? It's okay to go there, but so I had to like basically tell them, look, consider me like, you know, an underprivileged guy. Just you know, throw me a scholarship. I won't let you down. And when I went there, I was the only guy in the media room because for me it was the first experience, but. A lot of the big names were not showing up till till Federer showed up. Mm-hmm. I was attending mm-hmm. Wawrinka's press conferences. I was the only English-speaking journalist. I don't want to call myself a journalist, but, you know, I was in media. So for Nishikori's mm-hmm. press conference. So, yeah, I mean, and then I've covered a bunch of 250s. And 250 is a great way to start, I think. I yes. Totally because the, the access in Newport is phenomenal. When I yep. went there, Joshua told me, Joshua Ray, for me to be, yeah, you can go approach any player. You don't need me for this this is different than Miami where, you know, you have to fill out a form. Yep. Um, so yeah, no, you're so right. It's it, two, two fifties are, are great for a lot of reasons, but that is definitely one. Uh, and the players tend to be a little more relaxed as well, which is nice. Pre, Pre-COVID Delray Beach was on my list, but now I don't know when the world's going to, I mean, I'm chickened out to fly and go to tournaments now. Mm. Delray Beach was a destination I had because of my experience in Newport. I thought two fifties is the way to go. Highly so, recommend. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe one day. Uh, So I want to ask you again, you know, we can go on and on because this is a very interesting path you have. But uh, in this podcast, we try to, you know, do a long format interview. And I, like I said, I, my preparation goes sometimes about the guest, what they have done, but here on the court, what is your mantra? You know, uh, talk about your first interview because you're doing, there's, there are no retakes. You're doing a live interview after a match has ended and, Mostly the bigger the matches, the bigger the names, more crowd. Mm-hmm. So walk us through that first moment and then, you know, tell us how you evolved in that role and, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm just, like? it's funny. I'm trying to remember who my very first on-court interview was. And it's not coming to me, but 2015 was the year. I'll never forget this. 2015 was the year that Flavia Panetta won the U.S. Open. And she sort of cycled through court 17 and, and one of the, uh, pieces of advice I had gotten from from the senior member of the the tennis MC world was, you know, just make sure you put the microphone like way up, you know, put it like in their grill pretty much because people want to be able to hear what they're saying. I had Flavia Panetta the next match. She comes out and she's pretty soft spoken. And, and so I had this thing like up in her teeth. She takes one finger and pushes it right back down. I was like, okay. 
I guess the top row is not going to be hearing <laughs> this interview, but uh, no, I, you know, one of the interesting things with my first job, my first stadium hosting job in particular on court 17 was it was just me. A lot of the bigger stadiums have a stage manager. They have a TV producer. Uh, they have people. It was literally just me. So I talked to the camera person and to the ESPN director and I held the players at the door. Um, I mean, a lot of players will, I mean, they would almost bulldoze me coming out of that tunnel on court 17. Like, no, we're stopping here, guys. We have to wait for TV. Uh, and, and just sort of even in those moments of, hi, guys, you know, good, good to see you all. We're going to be, we have about 90 seconds till we walk. It's going to be so-and-so first, so-and-so second. Uh, and then just sort of holding them there explaining, you know, you can walk when you hear me say your name and getting the count from the camera person, even those sort of interactions in the hallway, I feel like looking back helped me in the relationship building process. Uh, so I could not have asked for a better training ground than a court where not only was I doing that stuff, I was also the DJ. I, yeah. was, I was doing all, all sorts of things. I was sort of the tech person as well, which if, you, if anyone who knows me is listening to this, you know that tech is not my specialty. So um, again, just learned a whole lot. Um, I started off using notes in my hand and... I think it took about two days for me to stop doing that. I realized that it was more of a, a crutch, if anything. And if I had something written, I was more inclined to look at it versus just trusting myself. Uh, so yeah, that it was about 48 hours of using notes. And I was like, I just got to commit. I have to just go in there. I have in general, I have a plan A. I know what I want to ask uh, going in. And if the player decides they're going to take it somewhere else or they have some sort of crazy, crazy celebration at the end, or they, I don't know, throw a soaking wet shirt into the stands. If something interesting happens at the end, then you can sort of weave that in. Um, but for the most part, I go in knowing what I want to ask. And if the player takes it somewhere else, great. Uh, and it's that, that plan, I guess, has, has sort of served me well. So a couple of thoughts now, actually, more than a couple. So one, so you said code 17 works differently. And, you know, a lot of us, and even in real life and, you know, stuff comes at us that sometimes we react. And like you said, you reacted because you weren't part of a big crew and you did everything on code 17 and you learn the ins and out. But say, what is the difference between, say, a bigger code versus code 17? Mm -hmm. So are there any guidelines? Like, you know, you know, one is a microphone. But, you know, when I'm in the stadium, I won't hold it against you if the microphone isn't placed right. But... Call, calling myself some sort of a tennis purist or a tennis geek, I would like you to ask the right questions and you do that. So, so where does that prep come from? Say code 17 versus stadium code Ash. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because obviously on Ash, there are a lot more people uh, listening, uh, people who have the power to hire you back or not. It's not just about, did the crowd enjoy it? Was the player happy? It's, you know, you, you definitely in the, or at least in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, well, this, these are people who, you know, might hire me at another event. So I think there's maybe a little more pressure in that sense is that I'm also sort of thinking about it in terms of my job as a whole. Uh, I definitely, I, this year for the very first time at the U.S. Open, I did a few interviews on Ash. So much echo. <laughs> that is one thing, you know, I, I do remember the first interview I ever did on Armstrong and it was old Armstrong. It was a wheelchair, wheelchair doubles uh, match, I believe. And it was late at night um, through no fault of their own. There weren't a ton of 
people in the stands. So I had never experienced re like reverb like that before. So it's literally you're hearing yourself back uh, and you know how what it's like when that happens on the telephone like it's horrible when it's happening on a microphone and you're trying to make sure you are coherent with your questions so just little things like that i had to sort of learn as i went ash is very echoey as you might imagine um it even gives some players trouble uh where they're like oh, whoa i can't <laughs> how are you even talking right now i can't hear myself um so you know again i think every stadium is different some stadiums definitely have more pressure that come along with them, uh, especially if you know, for instance, you know, the world feed takes a decent amount of the interviews that I do throughout the year. Um, but at the US Open, every once in a while, I'll get an interview that airs on ESPN. That's obviously sort of another step. I don't know if I would call it a step up, but there's there's also more pressure that goes along with that. And you do, you said it, there are it's hard to please everyone with, with what you ask and your delivery. Were you too flip? Were you too serious? Did you, you know, did, did you not follow up when you should have with a player? But my, my general formula, if you will, is I try to ask one general tennis question about the match, one, one that's more specific. And that is, I think, where my tennis background comes in handy because uh, I do think sometimes post-match interviews, on-court post-match interviews can be a little fluffy. Uh, so I, I like to, for, for the tennis purists in the stands, if you were there, uh, Sakib, I'd love to be able to give you something to munch on. Uh, <laughs> so something, something that's maybe a little bit more technical. And then if I have time, you know, finish with something a little lighter. Yeah. No, I think... Uh... We've all been, at least on the, the hobbyist level, we've all talked about this. The conversation has come full circle. Look, this, any sport that has to grow, especially a sport like tennis, you need, I, I, and I don't want to use the word casual fans as lightly, but like I'm, I call myself now a casual NBA fan. I was a diehard mm -hmm. NBA fan when Jordan was <laughs> playing, but now I watch playoffs and I have a few friends that say, hey, what's going on? Mm -hmm. That's how we break conversation. Of course, I can go on ESPN.com, NBA.com and check out the standings, but sometimes, hey, who's the best player? What's going on? And so at the same time, you're right. You know, like, if you just make it like about the match, it can be boring because the US Open, I've met people who ask me literally who Federer is. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I believe it's it. New York, it's New York City. People buy a ticket and they come there, right? So, and, and that's okay to have that kind of, uh, you know, total package when you have to entertain the crowd. So that kind of makes a segue for the next question because, you know, you are covering ATP level too. You're just not doing majors. So when a name like, let's take Alcaraz, you know, he's the big, big name in tennis world. Pretty sure next year, the casual world will know how good is he if they already don't know him, uh, how he played, uh, you know, Tsitsipas at the US Open. So when that kind of a guy comes on your watch and you're going to be interviewing him, mm -hmm. so how do you want to uh, break it down to the crowd? Do you give him like a question, which is kind of introducing him to the crowd? Like, you know, mm -hmm. Of course, they lose comparisons. He's from Spain, the Nadal connection, then he's coached by Ferrero. So how mindful are you Like when you're kind of announcing him to a larger audience, which may have, again, uh, not to be you know, rude, but which may also have a lot of you know, casual fans who may become fans just because of this guy. So what is the mindset when you're talking to him after a match? Yeah, it's, that's a little bit challenging. It's interesting you say that. Some people know who you're talking about or who you're talking to. Some people have no idea. And so giving, 
a little context I think is helpful. I try if I can to give some information in my question. Obviously the player knows I'm talking about them, but for somebody who's, who might have no idea who he is, it gives him, you know, well, the youngest player to do X, Y, Z and is the youngest person since Nadal to blah, blah, blah. I, if I can, I try to add some nuggets of information and that's obviously not for the player. That's for the people who are watching Uh, language barrier is another thing that you would, I would consider with a player like Alcaraz who speaks, I think pretty good English, but you know, again, it's, it's not their first language. I, I have so much respect for all the tennis players who go out there in front of a stadium of people and don't always speak the best English, but give it their best go. And, you know, I I just think that would be terrifying. Uh, So the fact that they all do it, uh, no questions asked remains amazing to me, but it's something I definitely consider in the way that I ask a question. Um, Like even for instance, Arena Savalenka, I I did some uh, media day press at the U.S. Open. So this is a question I asked from from the seats in the media room, which is obviously a a different thing. But as I was asking the question, I'm looking in her eyes and I'm like, she I've she does not know what I'm talking about right now. And I definitely finished the question. She's like, I don't know what you just said. (laughs) I was like, I'm so sorry. That was my fault. And I do see that as my fault because I know that, you know, again, she speaks in my opinion, very good English, but sometimes and the way that you ask a question matters when you're talking to someone who is not, not a native English speaker. So definitely take that into consideration. And then if you have a player who's maybe not the most verbose or maybe a little dry or, and you, again, it helps to sort of know the personalities that also sort of guides what sort of questions I ask, um, you know, can I pull out a smile? Can, you know, can we joke? Uh, and I've made the mistake with some players, you really can't <laughs> and it falls flat on its face. So sometimes you just have to try it. And if it doesn't work, you're like, okay, well, we're not joking again uh, with that particular player. So, so yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into the questions I end up asking. And you said what for, for a podcast, you have a lot of questions. I also start off generally with a lot of questions um and and find a way to narrow it down to three or four so (laughs) that's not always easy no i actually listen to a politics podcast from india and you know it's it has like five if it's a tennis match five set matches this episode is usually three hours long and i finish in like you know six seven attempts 20 minutes here so one of the guys who was like an editor from a very noted indian newspaper and he said something which i've kind of adopted he said look when I'm interviewing a guest, I do basic research because I don't want to know everything about the guest because mm-hmm. I also want to be swamped by surprise, the element of you know what the guest has done. So I'm not doing it for the audience. I also want to enjoy it myself. So in your mm-hmm. case, that's why I'm taking this route. I've started doing this in my podcast where I'm not you know putting out two, three hours of deep research. I do an outline and I also want to learn on the go with my audience so, no, this is an excellent point you made about uh, if a player is not a good English speaker because you have to, you know, and that kind of, like, gives a lot of respect for you guys, what you guys are doing, because most folks like me and the hardcore fans sometimes, oh, why is she asking this? Now we understand, and hopefully the listeners will too, that you are taking it way too. There is a process. You know the players. You know the limitations. Yeah. 
And even that thing about like guys 90 seconds, because some guys are not used to playing on TV courts, you know, Djokovic and, you know, Medvedev know that, yes. but you know, like if uh, they're like two guys who happen to be there, who beat a seed on, and now there's a TV court, they, they're, that's not part of their world. So that's kind of awesome that you mentioned that. So in, in the prep, you're talking about Nick Lester, you know, uh, so how do you work on the name pronunciation? Because when I spoke with him, Karen Hachanov was a name that was, you know, called Kachanov, Hachanov and whatnot. <laughs> so Nick said he would go around and at least try to find out the name, you know, with, with if he because he you know he has like access to player lounge or whatever so i'm sure you have similar access so he, he tries to at least shop around the name what's the best way to say the name and you know yes. as a commentator you prep for it so and you announce all these names i remember you announcing ram kumar ramanathan a few years ago i said wow she nailed it she knows the name <laughs> so so just talk about that and have you gone wrong a few times and how quickly are you there to correct it because all these names are quite international and you know we all don't yes. get them right the first time Yes. Uh, well, thankfully now there are more resources than there were when I started. You have the little pronunciation uh, icon on the ATP side and now also on the WTA side, which is so nice. So nice. I, <laughs> I could have used that many times uh, before they, they came up with it. And I think the problem is because you could ask five people and get five different answers. Uh, and that is where I will say being on court 17, I'm, I go back there, but standing in that hallway and being able to say, can you, I just want to make sure I get it right. Can you pronounce your name for me? I have never had a single player. And I, you know, that's sort of where I learned that that was an okay thing to do. I've done it many times since then. And I've never had a player ever upset that I clarified the correct pronunciation of their name. Most of the time they appreciate it. Uh, and so that really, I have no qualms about going straight to a player and saying, can you just say it for me? I really just want to make sure we get it right. Um, I, <laughs> I had an MC, it was a couple of years ago. He was, he was relatively new uh, and, you know, he asked, I don't know if he asked me about a name that I didn't know, or I'm not exactly sure how it came up, but I said, you know, listen, just go ahead and ask. And he was like, oh, he was horrified. You would ask like, that would be, they would be so offended. And like, listen, I've never had anyone be offended if you present it in, in the correct way. Not like I've never heard of you before. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say it? Uh, but just, it's, it really is just, you just want to do a good job at your job. Um, I want to be the best MC I can be. And I want to have respect for the players that I'm announcing and getting their name right is part of that. Have I missed some? Sure. I mean, I know that until the pronunciation uh, thing came out on the WTA site. I was not pronouncing Krejcikova correctly. And I thought I was like, those are always the tricky ones where you're like, wait a second, like Maria Sakari. We all thought it was Sakari until I'll never forget the, the time I figured that out. I was doing a, uh, it was Cincinnati 2019. And I was doing, and this is kind of before it came common, became common knowledge. And we were doing a, a Instagram live at the end, you know, after her match and she started off by saying, hi, guys, my name is Maria Sakari. And I was like, I was like, cut, <laughs> like, whoa, that's how you say your last name? And she said, yeah. I was like, why don't you tell people? Um, she said, honestly, because every, I mean, she was a, a known entity at that point. Yep. Uh, and she's like, my dad and I argue about this all the time. He tells me I should correct people. It just doesn't matter that much to me. Um, so again, I'm, I know that there are some that I have missed over time. And there are also 
some players this is sort of another subset. You probably didn't think this was going to be such a long answer. No, no, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for more. No, this is really good stuff. <laughs> uh, the, the subset of players who Americanize their name to an American. And, you know, like I, I remember announcing Rebecca Pedersen, who is, I, I'm, I believe, Swedish. I should have looked, confirmed that. But yeah, yeah she, yes, uh, I said it's Pedersen, correct? She said, you could say Peterson. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. I was like, but what's the correct way? <laughs> the correct way to say it um you know nico mahu or mau it is on his atp um on his you know atp pronunciation he pronounces it nicolas mahout and i actually asked him i don't know if he's changed that uh, since then but i went up to him in uh, newport actually and i was like nico that's not how you say your name right and he's like well no but that's how all the americans say it <laughs> But yeah. that's but that's not the point of the pronunciation icon. Like we want to hear the correct way to say it. Um, so again, there are many layers to the pronunciation puzzle. I definitely feel like there are more resources out there. Um, but asking the player is my favorite resource of them all. No, I think that's that's as organic as it gets. And you know, like I'm someone who is from India and I have called the United States home for the last 27 years. But even in my native country, my name was butchered in my classroom a lot. And I you would think it. it's like two vowels, a simple name, but it was called Saqib, Saqib. And people even added Ds. I've been called Sadiq. Yeah. Like people yeah. on my podcast have called me Sadiq. And then one of my guests, one of my friends pinged me, so why didn't you correct the guest? I said, I should have, but he called me Sadiq 10 times. And then there was no way so going it's a back. Short I, Saqib? Saqib. Saqib. Okay. But, but again, on but, the first syllable. Okay. But in in US, like what you said, like Patterson Peterson, I'm okay, Sakib, because Sakib is yeah. still it makes sense uh, than Sakib because there's no U in my spelling. That's so, true. <laughs> so no, and similarly, you know, like even the most, you know, you know, Hall of Fame player, like you know, the greatest player right now, Djokovic, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny, American side of the house calls him Djokovic. And if you listen to Europeans, they call him Djokovic. Yes. So, you know, and, and he's okay with both. I mean, you know, he, you know, he's a commodity and, you know, he's the best player in both demographies. And, you know, like he doesn't really care, but I'm sure at some point this was asked. And even Marat Safin, I remember at US Open, someone asked him if it's Safin or Safin. And he said it's Safin. And all this time we were thinking he's Russian. And he Americanized, he called me Safin. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at his sister, she's Safina. She's not Safina. Yep. <laughs> so sometimes, yep. like you said, players also say stuff. Because they say, oh, you know, this is an old conversation. As long as you're not, you know, messing it up, slight pronunciation mm-hmm. error is okay. No. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting question, though. And, and and like I said, it has has many, many layers. And, you know, Sharapova is another good example of that. Yeah. That's not how you say Sharapova correctly, but that's how we all say Sharapova. All right, so let's go back to the on-court match interview. So what is your best five-set match, your favorite five-set match that you've called either this year or last year, where you have to go interview the winner right after? I, my answer to this is, is very fresh in my memory. And that is Botik van de Zanschulp taking out okay. Diego Schwartzman in five sets at, on Louis Armstrong Stadium at the U.S. Open uh, during his absolutely bonkers run from qualies. It was, it also happened to be a rainy day. So we had a full house in Armstrong. You're always going to have a rowdy crowd for Diego and people were engaged. And I am telling you, even though there were, you know, infinitely more Diego fans in that stadium than Botic fans, <laughs> most people had no idea who he was. By the end, 
I there I guarantee you there are people who's like who are thinking he's my new favorite player because you couldn't help but be sucked in by his fight. And again, most people had no idea that he had already played. I'm trying to remember what round that was, but had already played a ton of matches. Like he had to be exhausted. He won none of them in straight sets Um, or maybe he won one in straight sets. Anyway, regardless, he had played a lot of tennis. He should have been unable to stand by the time we got to that fifth set. Uh, But he was able to close it out. And people even I feel like even the Diego fans, it was like we just witnessed an awesome fight. Uh, and that's how I felt, which is nice because sometimes you get those matches. And when, when the favorite doesn't win, people filter out for the interview. They are, they're not they're They're totally checked out by the time we get to the on-court interview. And maybe I had a little help from the rain that day. Um, it wasn't raining at the end of the match, but who knows, maybe, maybe people decided they were going to stay put because of that. But people were, he was the first qualifier to ever reach that point at the U S open, um, first men's qualifier, obviously that was, was quickly broken on the women's side, but it was, you know, people, you know, as soon as I said that, as we talked about sort of putting in a, a nugget of information, you are now the first men's qualifier in history to reach. I think it was the fourth round at the U S open. And I actually have video of it. Some, one of my friends took video and the crowd just erupted. Uh, and it was just sort of like, a, was a star is born sort of moment yeah it was just so it was it was the respect that he deserved after a match like that and sometimes those players who are sort of unknowns to start off with don't always get that and so it was a really special moment so again a follow-up again I'm being really geeky here so when you're watching that kind of five-setter if you know so are you taking notes like depending on who wins how do you you know, of course, you know, there's the nugget to introduce yeah. the newcomer in this sense, but then there's like a veteran like Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those could be like preliminary questions, but then are you keeping uh, notes of like, you know, if there's a big momentum swing in the match, what you're going to do? Because, you know, we don't appreciate all this stuff because, okay, here the MC comes and I'm going to talk to a player, but, you know, in this world, you're still keeping tab on the match with the match. Right. right. Uh, in a match like that, my, my plan A questions probably change. 10 times <laughs> uh, because the, the story of the match is rewritten probably 10 times uh, with the number of times I was like, surely Diego has this surely Botig is out of gas. And, you know, he kept swinging the momentum back in his direction. So definitely as the match writes itself, my questions change. And also you ask sort of what goes into deciding on the questions that you ask at that point, exhaustion really is a factor I, I probably am not going to go into, you know, there was a point at yeah. four all in the fourth set where you hit an incredible passing shot. They can't even like think straight at that point They're you know, their hands are shaking as they're signing the tennis balls to hit out into the stands. So I definitely will take that into account as well. Sometimes you just have to sort of play it more straightforward. Let it be more about the fan uh, interaction because they sat there for that four plus hour five set match uh, and just be, be satisfied with that. And that in itself is a cool moment. It's just a different sort of moment than maybe what typically makes a great, a quote unquote, great interview. No, I think this is very fascinating. It looks like I requested uh, for the time. So one last question, I, we have to invite you back sure. here because <laughs> so just uh, share with the audience or the listeners here, uh, your, I don't know, most memorable interview, you know, like uh, 
it doesn't have to be with a superstar or whatever i mean that especially what made it memorable and the prep or you know the outcome and just share a fun good anecdote mm-hmm. to end this okay hang on. all right i'm thinking i'm thinking back i so there i have had interviews that have been my favorites for for different reasons um my first interview actually ever on ash was uh, alexander sparev at the us open this year which was a more complicated interview, you could say. Um, there were more things that I had to consider when I went into thinking through those questions. Uh, but obviously being on Ash for the first time was very cool for me personally. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, listen, if I'm thinking of my my favorite it's pro- or the most memorable, it's probably got to be the Dennis Shapovalov rap moment. <laughs> I don't know if anything will ever beat that. I don't think anything will ever be as unusual as that. Dennis will never rap again on court. So I know, I know he's not going to beat his own record there. Um, I mean, but that was just, I finished that interview. and was like, nobody's ever seen that on a tennis court before. So there was a, a cool, it was sort of a cool feeling like, Hey, we just witnessed history. Uh, it was interesting history, but it was history nonetheless. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Rigor Dimitrov is another great one. He, he and I had a good one on. It was I think U.S. Open 2019, and he was having a great run. I think that's when he yep, made the semis. Yep, yep. Uh, so, and he had not played well leading up to it, and so it was. It was, and he's he could not be nicer. He is one of the most genuinely like. We'll see you walking down the hall. We'll stop to say hello. We'll give you a hug, a high five. And he, he, it's not like he has to. He, it's like he gen, genuinely wants to. Um, side note on Gregor, he's fantastic. Uh, but he had, <laughs> before the tournament, he had gone to see a Backstreet Boys concert. And uh, it was, I mean, he is just like belting it out on his Instagram stories. And so I sort of wove that into the last question. I mean, how, do, how does that sort of loosen you up? You've got the New York vibe, you sang your heart out. Um, and he gave, you know, a sort of a bashful, great answer. Um, and our DJ was ready to play Backstreet Boys as soon as the interview wrapped up. It, w- it was very cute uh, and lovable. And to be able to sort of tie in the music, that is something I try to do as much as I can. If I know that a player has a favorite song or I know that they have recorded a song or I, you know, again, we all know Grigor loves the Backstreet Boys. So if, if I can tie in the music and just make a call up to the DJ, assuming I myself am not the DJ, I definitely try to do that if I can. I think we're up for time. Thank you very much. I mean, the time flew by and I'm, I've never said this on a podcast before while recording. I think I'll call it this interview one. We'll definitely have you for a continuation. I think we have to get another episode because I feel there are a lot of topics left, but I think this is what I requested. And I think this was a wonderful chat. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I did enjoy it. And I, and I'm, I'm going to further prove what I'm about to say here is I feel like part of the reason we didn't get through those topics is because my answers were not exactly concise. And I can tell you in a post-fetch interview, there is a sweet spot. You don't want someone who is too concise you don't want someone who is too verbose. There is there is a sweet spot. I feel like I was definitely on the too verbose no, no, but this side is, today. Yeah, the, the full attempt here is to be not concise. This is a podcast. People will be <laughs> listening to this on a treadmill, running, driving. That and is true. This is what I aim for, you know. Sometimes my questions lack clarity, but then I, because my mind is going in 10 different directions. But no, I think you, you helped me 
uh, stay in check and those are great answers i i'm pretty sure the the listenership would enjoy this and uh, we'll definitely plan another episode which will be part two of this but thank please, you for your time please do i would love it thank you so much uh sakib sakib yeah okay great i got it 